All right, it's 9.30. I'd like to wait till it's right 9.30, but we're going to get started with Sunday School. Thank you for being here. Welcome. We're in the next phase of Israel's history as we move through our chronological study through the Bible. We're in the divided kingdom period. Ten and a half tribes have seceded from the monarchy that is led by David's seed, and only Judah and the half-tribe of Benjamin have remained loyal. But rather than studying about each king going forward in the two kingdoms, we're only going to focus on certain kings and certain prophets that appear during this period. And that's going to finish, um, and that's what we're going to see over the next quarter or so. The first prophet we're going to learn about, the first important prophet, is Jonah. But before we get to Jonah, let's review a little bit. Last week, we saw what brought about the divided kingdom, and that was Solomon's foolishness. In what ways did Solomon first compromise? It wasn't really bad at first, but he did some things that were against God's law. What were they? Yeah, Rob. He multiplied wives for himself, and they were foreign wives. What else? He amassed Gold and silver for himself. That was prohibited according to Deuteronomy. What else? Well, we're going to get to that. that that's where these small compromises lead to. It leads to idolatry. But there are two other things that he did. Right. He went to Egypt. And specifically, what was he trying to get from Egypt? Horses. That was specifically prohibited. Don't multiply horses for yourself and don't go to Egypt to get those horses because God has said you shall not return that way. He did these things. He, he acted contrary to God's law. These were perhaps what seemed to be small compromises, but these, especially the multiplication of wives, they led to an even greater compromise. And Joe's already mentioned it. They caused Solomon to turn away from God and to inaugurate idolatry in Israel for his wives, and for his people. He worshipped and led the worship of false gods. Solomon, the great king of peace and wisdom, he chose to forfeit both God's peace and God's wisdom for the sake of the feelings of the flesh and for the treasures of the world. The great teacher would not listen to his own teaching. God brought chastening to Solomon. He rebuked Solomon. He raised up rebels against Solomon. He prophesied the loss of the kingdom to Solomon because of Solomon's sin. But God didn't bring the loss of the kingdom in Solomon's lifetime, and nor did he take away the whole thing. And why not? It was because of God's mercy, but God cites something in his actions. Yeah, Craig. For David's sake, and then he also says for Jerusalem's sake. We didn't have time to go through the scriptures, but God says a number of things about Jerusalem after the temple is constructed. He says, I'm, I'm going to show mercy to this city. I'm going to set my compassion on this city because I've chosen to put my name here. So for the sake of Jerusalem and for the sake of David, God's covenant with David, he says, I will not do it in your lifetime. You don't deserve this kindness, but for the sake of David in Jerusalem, I will not do it in your lifetime and I won't take away the whole thing. I will preserve David's line just as I promised to him. God was determined to show faithful kindness to David and by extension to Israel and to even us, to all mankind, by preserving the throne and line of David, which one day brought about the Messiah. So we see in his dealings with Solomon that God is holy, but he's also full of covenant kindness. And he shows that. Questions about last week's lesson? Okay, well, let's learn about Jonah. We're going to read and discuss the whole book today. It's only four short chapters, so we can do it. It's a famous account, but what is it really about? What does God want to communicate to us through Jonah? Well, let's find out. Here's our outline for today's class. Get a little bit of background to the book of Jonah and the historical circumstances of Jonah. We'll then examine God's call to Jonah and Jonah's resistance, famous resistance to that call. And then we'll finish by discussing Jonah's fulfillment of God's calling and Jonah's reaction to the mercy that he sees from God uh, after he fulfills his calling. Let's pray. Father, your word is great. Please help me to explain it now and to, to really get the sense of it and communicate it to your people. I pray, Father, that you would work in the hearts of, of your people, that we would all grow, that we would all mature in our thinking, that we would put aside unprofitable and sinful ways 
and we would revel in your wisdom and in your heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're jumping forward in time, as I mentioned earlier. Let's get a little bit of background. Here's a map. Let's situate ourselves historically. Uh, a little bit uh, hard to see on this screen. Maybe you can see it better on the, the monitors. But we see the divided kingdom and we see some of Israel's neighbors. Kingdom divides around 975 BC, according to Answers in Genesis dating system. 931, according to the MacArthur Study Bible. So mid-10th century BC. We have the northern kingdom which is called Israel. I know that's confusing because the whole kingdom was called Israel before, but the northern kingdom is called Israel. And it breaks away under Jeroboam, and under Jeroboam it immediately plunges into idolatry. Jeroboam is a very wicked king. Though God gave the ten tribes to Jeroboam to rule, Jeroboam quickly turns his back on God, and he relies on his own understanding. In order to prevent the people from going to Jerusalem, remember God prescribed all the heads of households to go to Jerusalem for the different religious feasts. Jeroboam, in order to prevent the loyalty of the people switching back to the southern kingdom, he he crafts two golden calves, he proclaims them to be Israel's gods, and he puts one in Dan, which is at the top of the tribes of Israel. You can see it, I think, on the map. And one in Bethel, which is at the bottom of the northern kingdom of Israel. He puts these calves there and he says, these are your gods, come here to worship and offer sacrifice. Don't go down to Jerusalem. Now this is wicked. This is idolatry. This is exactly contrary to God's law. And God judges Jeroboam and his house for inaugurating this kind of idolatry. However, every northern king after Jeroboam follows in his footsteps, even when they're not of the same dynasty. The northern kingdom is full of dynastic overthrows and coups, but every king, almost without exception, acts like Jeroboam. The northern kings are extremely wicked. Idolatry also, of one form or another, pervades the northern kingdom throughout its, almost, or throughout its history. Various prophets are sent by God to the northern kingdom, calling the people to repentance, and we'll examine some of these prophets. But as a whole, the northern kingdom never follows after God. It's always compromising. God eventually allows the northern kingdom to be conquered, and its people led into exile by the Assyrians. Uh, they are not featured on the map. They would be further to the northeast, beyond Aram, beyond the kingdom of Syria, Assyria, further northeast. They conquer and take in exile the northern kingdom of Israel around 722 B.C. So from about the mid-900s to 722, we have the northern kingdom of Israel. Then we have the southern kingdom. You see the southern kingdom in the yellow here, Judah. It's called Judah after the tribe, the main tribe of the southern kingdom, and it is a mixed track record of devotion to the Lord. Sometimes the people and the king of Judah do follow the Lord, and sometimes they don't. There are a number of reformations that take place in the southern kingdom throughout its history under good kings. And because of these reformations and because of these good kings, sometimes the southern kingdom enjoys prosperity, blessing, as the people are obedient to God. The southern kingdom also gets prophets and godly leaders, but even Judah does not stay devoted to God. After a series of extremely wicked kings and widespread evil among the people, God allows Judah also to be subdued, this time not by Assyria, but by Babylon, the empire that takes over after Assyria. first wave of exiles from the southern kingdom are taken by Nebuchadnezzar in 605 BC, but it The southern kingdom rebels a couple times after that, and the third time that Nebuchadnezzar conquers the southern kingdom, he devastates the city of Jerusalem in 586 BC. And it is in this third conquest that Nebuchadnezzar destroys Solomon's temple. Remember, the temple is a symbol of God's presence, the prosperity and the peace that they enjoy because of him, that is wiped away. So that's a broad outline of what we see of these two kingdoms, the divided kingdom, But where does Jonah fit into this history? Well, pretty much in the middle. He appears in the middle of the the divided kingdom period. We hear a little bit about Jonah in the one other place he's mentioned in the book of Kings. So actually, take your Bibles and turn to 2 Kings 14 for a second. We're going to be in the book of Jonah, but turn to 2 Kings. 
2 Kings 14. And we'll look at verses 23 to 25. It's the only other place that Jonah is mentioned outside of the book of Jonah. 2 Kings 14, 23 to 25. All right, starting in verse 23. Look at those verses. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that's the first Jeroboam, which he made Israel sin. He restored the borders border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was of Gath Hefer. Okay, we learn a couple things about Jonah here. What do we learn? What's one thing? What's one thing we can observe about Jonah? Well, there's some basic things. He's a prophet. He's the son of Amittai. What else? Yeah, where is he from? Gath Hefer. Yeah, we don't really know where that is, or you might not know where that is. But that's actually near Nazareth in Galilee. So it's actually um, one of the statements in the New Testament is found to be an error when the Pharisees say, look and see for yourself, no prophet ever arises from Galilee. They were dismissing Jesus, but actually Jonah is from Galilee, though um, his ministry was unique, so perhaps they weren't thinking of Jonah. Where is Jonah ministering, or where does he appear to be ministering? Say that. He is in Israel, but which kingdom? Oh, I'm sorry, yeah, Israel is the name of the northern kingdom. It says that he makes a prophecy which is fulfilled by the king of the northern kingdom. It says uh, Jeroboam restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to Jonah's prophecy. So it appears to be a prophet to the northern kingdom. Remember, northern kingdom, always wicked, very idolatrous. But Jonah is a prophecy there, a prophet to that kingdom. And he makes a prophecy which comes to pass by the acts of Jeroboam II. Does that mean that he lived during the time of Jeroboam II? Could be, or maybe slightly before. If we try and put Jeroboam II and Amaziah, king of Judah, into, the, into some kind of date, we're talking the beginning of, or maybe midway through the 8th century BC. So Jonah probably lived in the early 8th century BC, so that'd be, the early, um, that'd be like 800 to 775 or so, or maybe slightly before. Okay, it's possible he lived a little bit earlier because his prophecy comes to pass. It doesn't say he prophesied this during the reign of Jeroboam. Rather, his prophecy came to pass during the reign of Jeroboam II. All right, uh, quick information about the book of Jonah himself or itself. Who wrote the book of Jonah? We don't know. Probably was Jonah. A lot of this information would make sense coming straight from Jonah. And it's not, it's not strange that he writes in the third person if Jonah really did did indeed write this book. That's, uh, it has precedent. When was it written? Well, probably whenever Jonah was living, which looks like it was the early 8th century. Answers in Genesis dates the events of Jonah to about 800 BC. Okay, so we've got some background. We've got the historical context. We've got a little bit about the book. Let's now take a look at the text of Jonah itself. So take your Bibles and turn to Jonah. Surprisingly hard to find book. It's after Daniel, it's after Ezekiel, it's right after Obadiah, but it's such a short book that it can be easy to pass it when you're looking in your Bibles. I'll give you the page number if you're using the Bibles that we provide. It's 922. And let's look at the first two chapters of Jonah. Like I said, we're going to read the whole thing, starting with the first two chapters. Follow along with me. Chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship, which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, 
and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, lain down and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? They said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. So they said to him, what should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. He said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not. For the sea was becoming even stormier against them. And they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us, for you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish, and he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought up my, you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. But I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. That which I vowed I will pay, salvation is from the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Okay, let's start our analysis of the book of Jonah with some observations on these two chapters. What does God command Jonah to do? Go and preach to Nineveh. Where is Nineveh? It's in Assyria, the same Assyria that later conquers the northern tribes. So that would be to the, I'll show you a map in just a second, the northeast of where Israel is situated. And Nineveh is called a great city. Indeed, it was one of the greatest cities, if not the greatest city at the time. From around 911 to 612 BC, the, the Assyrian Empire was hegemon of the Middle East. They were dominating all their neighbors. Through successful warfare and brutal subjugations, the Assyrians gained control over many regions and they secured great wealth for themselves. The city of Nineveh, as the capital of the Assyrian Empire, was no doubt much enriched by these conquests. However, the Assyrians, Ninevites included, were idolatrous people. The same wicked practices which God forbid from Israel and rebuked Israel for pursuing, they were going on in Nineveh and in Assyria. They were a pagan people. They were a wicked people, probably even more wicked than, than Israel whenever Israel compromised. This was what the Ninevites knew. Now normally, oh, and, and I'll say one more thing. Jonah is told by God to cry out against Nineveh because of its wickedness. He says its wickedness is great. By the way, that sounds like what other city that got called out for its wickedness? Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember, he says, I'm going to go down, see I've heard the report, the wickedness is piled to heaven, I'm going to go find out for myself. A little different with Jonah, he says, 
Its wickedness is great. Go tell them. Go cry out against it. Now, normally when a prophet receives a mission from God like this, the prophet obeys right away, but not Jonah. Verse 3 says, but Jonah, contrast word, but Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. What's this? God's prophet fleeing from the mission? Fleeing from God's presence? What's going on? Well, we'll learn later, but in the beginning, in these first two chapters, we don't understand. This is a head-scratching move from God's prophet. Now, Jonah flees to Tarshish. Where is Tarshish? It's possible that it was in southern Spain. The truth is we don't know. The city is actually mentioned a number of times in Scripture. It was certainly an important coastal city, famed for its mercantile activity. If you look at the reign of Solomon, he's often interacting with Tarshish. It's apparently an important trading center. But if Jonah's fleeing to it, it probably is far from Israel. The only reason we think it's in Spain is because of what a 5th century Greek historian, Herodotus, he identifies the city of Tarshish as the city of Teresis in what is today southern Spain. So you can see on the map here, if that is indeed the case, this would be quite far from where God told Jonah to go. Nineveh and the northeast, northeast, Jaffa is the port in Israel that Jonah is seeking to sail from, Tarshish in southern Spain. Uh, by the way, don't confuse Tarshish with Tarsus. Tarsus is another city, and that's in southern Asia Minor. That would be at the bottom of Turkey, kind of around where the bend of Turkey goes into Syria. That's where the Apostle Paul was born. That's a different city. Okay, so Jonah flees from God to Tarshish by getting on a boat, or at least he attempts to flee. But what does God bring on the boat? A storm, and an increasingly violent storm. The sailors do their best, but the boat is about to break up. So what... Final, uh, what alternative do the sailors turn to? Pray, pray to the gods. Maybe one of them will have mercy on us. But Jonah is not doing this. He's asleep. They wake Jonah up. They say, you pray to your God too. But then the sailors decide to, de- decide to cast lots. Remember, lots are something like dice or sticks that when you cast them, they, they communicate some kind of information. They cast lots to indicate which passenger, which passenger has caused the storm to come upon them. And what do you know? The lot falls on Jonah. That's not an accident. They demand to know of Jonah about him and what he did. And he tells them, I'm a Hebrew, I follow Yahweh, and I'm running from his presence. <laughs> they, they ask him why he would do this thing, and they also ask him what they should do to placate Yahweh. And what does Jonah say they should do? Throw him overboard. Now that's kind of an odd response. Jonah doesn't say, I'm running from the Lord, so we've got to turn around and go to Joppa. I mean, that would make sense, right? I have to go back. Jonah doesn't say, well, Yahweh has control over the sea, so let me pray to God for you. Let me pray to God for the ship. Let me repent, and I'm sure the storm will disappear. No, he says, throw me overboard. If Jonah is tossed overboard in the middle of the ocean, in a storm no less, what's going to happen to Jonah? He's going to die. He's going to drown. He basically says, you have to kill me by throwing me overboard. The sailors realize this, and they try to not go to this alternative. They row to get to land, but it's no use. They can't escape the storm. They finally pray to God and ask God not to hold them accountable for taking Jonah's life. And as soon as Jonah is in the sea... The sea becomes calm. What do the sailors then do? They offer sacrifice to God. They fear God. It says they feared God. They make sacrifices and they make vows to God. That's kind of an interesting response. These godless people, they have the right response when they see that, uh, when they see God obviously acting by calming the storm. Well, it looks like it's all over for Jonah, but it's not. Because God commands a great fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah is in the fish's stomach. The term can also be translated belly or abdomen. Three days and three nights. And then Jonah prays. For what does Jonah ask? Something basic. 
because of the poetry, it may be a little bit difficult to find what he's asking for directly. But what is he asking for? Yeah, he's asking for rescue. He's asking for help. He says, uh, verse 2, I called out in my distress. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. Help me, God. Save me. Now, what does Jonah reaffirm in verse 9 of chapter 2? Yeah, he says salvation is from the Lord. But what about what is he going to do in response to God helping him? Yeah, he's going to fulfill his vow. He says, I'm going to sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. This is, these are the words of someone committed to honoring, following, and obeying the Lord. He's turned around his behavior. He says, God help me. I'll do what you want me to do. I'll follow after you. He affirms that he will worship and serve the Lord. And right afterwards, Jonah is vomited onto dry land. Vomited. Mm. Gross, but he's alive and on dry land. Now let's ask a couple of interpretive questions. Why does Jonah ask the sailors to throw him overboard instead of telling them to just turn around or to wait for him to pray? What do you think? Uh, Judy. I think that is the answer. Yeah, I'll repeat what you said, Judy. He does not appear ready to repent, and he's actually still trying to run away from the Lord, but this time by dying. I'd rather be dead than fulfill the Lord's mission. So that's why he says, just throw me overboard. And we know he's not yet repented because it's, only, it, it's three days he spends inside the fish, and then we hear his prayer asking for help, talking about his help. And it's right after that that he's on dry land. So he did not appear to be repentant yet when he told the sailors to throw him in the sea. Furthermore, we'll see later in chapter 4, Jonah there asks God to end his life. So already, escaping life circumstances through death is, already, or is, is certainly an idea in Jonah's mind. So I think, some, some might not agree, but I think we're led to understand that Jonah is still trying to escape from God when he tells the sailors to throw him in the sea. But God can't be thwarted that way. God won't let Jonah die. What looked like certain death in the rolling storm waves in the middle of nowhere, or in what looked like that, God provides a means of miraculous preservation, albeit uncomfortable miraculous preservation. Jonah will be held in a fish until Jonah is ready to obey the Lord. Now, what kind of fish swallowed Jonah? A big one. Can we be more specific? Not really. We don't know what kind of fish it was. The, the term isn't, isn't that descriptive. Some think it may have been a whale. Certainly whales are big, and they could kind of be qualified as fishes, though technically, anatomically, not really. It's possible it's a whale, though the Hebrews do have a term for whale, and it's not used here. Could have been a whale, a blue whale, big whale, giant shark, some other aquatic creature that no longer exists or maybe that we've never discovered, or one that was specially created for the task. But whatever it was, it was a big fish. It swallows Jonah whole and holds Jonah in its belly. Now, how did Jonah survive for three days and three nights inside this fish? By the grace of God... Does this naturally happen or is this supernatural? His survival is supernatural. First of all, being swallowed by the fish, that set of circumstances is miraculous enough, but his survival is miraculous because he would not have survived otherwise. Either God caused the creature that swallowed him to behave unnaturally in some way that allowed Jonah to survive or God prevented the conditions that normally would kill Jonah to not do so. Because, normally, being swallowed by a fish, even if Jonah did not die by whatever digestive processes are inside this fish, he would have had no air to breathe. If Jonah were swallowed by a whale, for instance, whales have a separate respiratory and digestive system. They're not like us, where we breathe and eat through the same uh, avenue, through the mouth. Whales don't do that. Whales breathe through the top of their heads. 
and they only eat through their mouths. There's no way for air to actually get into their stomachs. So if he were swallowed by a whale, there would be no way he could survive, or presumably no way he could survive. But maybe the fish did something special. Maybe the fish had Jonah only in its mouth or regurgitated him periodically, and the fish came to surface and opened its mouth to give Jonah air or something. But that would be completely unnatural. That's not normal for a fish to do. But even that, perhaps, would not have been enough to spare Jonah from what would have killed him. It's also possible that God simply supernaturally provided for Jonah inside that fish. That just like when God provided for Daniel's three friends, when they went into the fiery furnace, it didn't harm them. In the same way, God may have done something for Jonah so that he was not killed by digestive processes and he had air to breathe. God provided something. Whatever he did, it was miraculous for Jonah. On normal conditions, Jonah would have died. Now, perhaps some of you have heard stories about certain modern people who have survived being swallowed by whales or by fishes. These are unfortunately just stories. They're not true. Or at least there's, there's no reason to believe that they're true. They're not verifiable. There are plenty of things that contradict these stories. And as we've just mentioned, physically, it's impossible to survive being inside a whale. There's no air. There's no air for one to breathe. But keeping Jonah alive is no problem for God, the all-powerful God. If he can miraculously bring a storm on Jonah's ship, cause the lot to fall on Jonah, calm the sea as, Jonah, as soon as Jonah's in the water, God can certainly keep Jonah alive in the great fish's belly. Now, some have suggested that Jonah actually does die and God brings him back to life. That's the way that God supernaturally provides. I suppose that might be possible. It does fit with a parallel that Jesus makes to Jonah, which we'll see a little bit later, as he compares his own death to Jonah's experience. But I don't think this is the case. Because Jonah's prayer, as we've looked at, it paints a picture of nearly dying, not of actually dying. Uh, One of the words I thought was particularly helpful. Verse 7 in chapter 2, While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. So I was in the process of distress, Things were looking bad for me, and I remember the Lord, and you provided salvation for me. Moreover, if Jonah died, how could he offer a prayer asking for God to help him? He'd be dead. He couldn't offer any prayers. So I don't think that's what happened. But whatever God did, it was miraculous, and it was merciful to Jonah. Questions so far? Yeah, Rob. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's a great point. We'll come back to that point a little bit later on. No one can presume to experience what Jonah is experiencing, the mercy, the sovereign mercy of God. But when God chooses to show compassion and mercy on someone, there's nothing that can stop him. Jonah tries to kill himself. God says, I'm not going to let that happen. I'm determined to be compassionate to you and to cause you to repent. That is a very great thing from God. Other questions? Yeah, Roy. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. We'll come back to that one as well, but it's really interesting. Jonah is a really successful prophet, even though he really doesn't want to be. Like, he doesn't want to be a witness to these sailors, but he, they end up uh, repenting and turning to the Lord. And he doesn't want to go to Nineveh, but as we're going to see, it's a really successful ministry in Nineveh as well. He's an extremely reluctant prophet, but we see God, his sovereign power and his kindness. He said, nonetheless, I'm going to make you really successful. Other questions? No comments? All right, let's keep moving. So Jonah vomited up on the shores back to square one probably, perhaps, looking a little different after his experience inside the fish. But let's see what happens next. Let's read chapters 3 and 4. Verse 1, chapter 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim it to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. 
So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on ashes, sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. The Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about that plant, or about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant, for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals? And that's where it ends. Let's make some observations again. How does Jonah respond to God's command the second time? He obeys and he goes to Nineveh. Good job, Jonah. What is Jonah's message from God to Nineveh? In 40 days, what's going to happen? It's going to be overthrown. It's going to be judged. It's going to have devastation brought to it. It's probably going to be destroyed. How do the people respond? They repent. They believe and repent. And they demonstrate this repentance in praying, fasting, and wearing sackcloth, the least to the greatest of them. Even the king takes off his robes and dons sackcloth. This is incredible. The capital of Assyria, Nineveh, the greatest city in the Middle East, hears the message of God and repents immediately. All of them, even the king, who might have chosen instead to be stubbornly proud, they acknowledge their sin and throw themselves upon the mercy of God. This is completely unexpected. I would say it's an even bigger miracle than what happened to Jonah and the fish. The whole city of Nineveh repents. And how does God respond? That's right. He relents of the judgment. When he saw what they did, when he saw their repentance, how they turned from the evil way, he did not send the judgment. But what does Jonah think of God's response? He was angry about it. Now, we hear from Jonah why he fled from God in the first place. What was the reason? Hermana? Yeah. He knew God's character and he feared that God might relent of the judgment on Nineveh and he would would show kindness to them. 
They feared that if the Ninevites repented, God's kindness would cause God to relent to the judgment. And at seeing at how things have developed, Jonah, as I alluded before, asked God to kill Jonah because death seems better than life to Jonah. The fact that you've spared this people makes me want to die, Jonah says. Then God creates an object lesson for Jonah. God causes a plant to grow miraculously overnight. Lovely plant. It provides shade to Jonah while Jonah watches the city. But then God causes a worm to destroy the plant the next night, and Jonah again becomes angry. Why does Jonah become angry about the plant? Well, partly we know it's because he was... He no longer had the shade, just as you said, Shay. He's being distressed by the hot wind and the sun on him. This plant had provided extra shade for him, and it's gone, and that's annoying. But there's another reason. Yeah, Danielle. Yeah, he had compassion on the plant. God says, you had compassion on the plant. He liked the plant. He cared about the plant. And this becomes the basis of a rebuke from God to Jonah. God tells Jonah, You're angry about the destruction of this plant, even though you didn't work hard for it and you only enjoyed it for a day. You had compassion about the plant. You cared about it and you felt pain when you saw this plant, this inanimate, transient plant, destroyed. That pained you. Not simply because you lost your shade, but because you liked the plant. How then can you find fault with me when I have compassion on Nineveh? A city so large that there are 120,000 people who do not know the difference between a right and left hand. By the way, which people are those? They've got to be small children. Children don't know the difference between right and left. There are probably 120,000 children in the city. And if there are that many children, then we're probably talking at least a half a million people in this city. It's a huge amount of people. And then there are the animals. God even mentions there are many animals in there too. God says, you have a compassion for a plant that you didn't even work for. Don't you understand why I have compassion on this city? These are my creations. They're made in my image. There are more than a half a million of them. Many of them are children. Many of my specially made animals are there too. And these people have repented. They've turned from their sin. Don't you see why I have compassion on them? How can you, Jonah, censure me and not have compassion on them yourself? And then that's where the account ends, with this question, with this rebuke from God to Jonah. Let's ask a couple of interpretive questions now. Based on what we saw, how does Jonah feel about the people of Nineveh? Yeah, he doesn't like them. That's a very nice way to put it. He hates them. He despises them. And as you said, he does not want to see them repent. Why does he hate them? We don't know. Maybe it's their idolatrous ways that are just so disgusting to him. Maybe it's interactions that he or other Israelites have had with the Ninevites and the people of Assyria in the past. Maybe it's the sins they've committed as part of their conquest and hegemony of the other nations. But for whatever reason, Jonah hates the Ninevites. And in a very strange but theological twist, you might expect that Jonah would have relished the opportunity to pronounce judgment on these people. Yes! God's going to get them. I can't wait to tell them. But Jonah knew God's heart too well. Jonah feared that if the people repented, I know God, he's going to show them kindness. And I don't want to see that. I don't want to see that at all costs, so I'm willing to flee and even die before I see that happen. Jonah hates Nineveh. But besides what God shows Jonah through the plant, how does Jonah show himself to be a hypocrite? He doesn't want to see God's compassion on the Ninevites. Why is this hypocritical? To whom has God very vividly already shown compassion? Jonah! Jonah was disobedient. And God didn't destroy Jonah. He was merciful to Jonah. He gave Jonah the ability to repent. And yet Jonah will not give the same opportunity to the Ninevites. He doesn't want to see the compassion of God that he received also given to the Ninevites. God did not do to Jonah as Jonah deserved. But Jonah was not willing 
to desire or show God's compassion to others who didn't deserve it. Now, why does this book end the way it does? It's kind of abrupt. Why do you think it ends that way? Yeah, Donna. Yeah, so you bring up some good points, Donna. There's certainly other exhortations in the Bible and the New Testament about showing compassion, especially to one's enemies, that we are to imitate God and showing kindness to the undeserving. But to get back to my question, why does the book end this way? Danielle. Yeah, it's poignant, right? To end with a question without an answer, without Jonah's response, it provokes a response from the reader. It provokes the reader to think about that question. Shouldn't God show compassion? Why would I resent if God did show compassion? Do I show compassion? This is very thought-provoking and instructive to the reader. It's a challenge almost, not just to Jonah, but also to the reader. And it causes the reader to examine his own attitude. Now, thinking about the four chapters as a whole, why does the author write this book? What does he want to show? Okay, everything happens for God's glory. True. What does he emphasize throughout this book? Yes, George. Yeah, this is about the compassion of God, right? We'll say more about that in just a second. What else is this really meant to show the reader? Not just God's compassion, but what also, what other aspect of God? Dwayne. Okay, we'll talk about that too. Yes, this compassion extends beyond Israel. And the fact that this is all happening to the Ninevites is actually quite profound to the Assyrians, not the Jews. But what other aspect besides God's kindness is clearly emphasized in this book? Yeah, Andrew. Yeah, I think that's, that's good, too, to fill out this idea of kindness. It has to do also with God's response to when people repent, that God is merciful and he relents of judgment. What are we going to say, Danny? Yeah, his sovereignty. His sovereignty combined with his kindness, but his sovereignty nonetheless. Uh, I'll just talk about a couple of those ideas. This book is clearly meant to communicate to us and cause us to appreciate God's sovereignty. He has total control. He controls prophets. He controls storms. He controls the casting of lots. He controls fish. He controls life and death and the hearts of men. No one's disobedience or weakness can thwart him. God will accomplish whatever he's determined, whether it's to turn a prophet around or to save a whole city. But this book is also meant to show us God's heart, God's kind heart, God's incredible kindness. God's sovereignty leads him to glorious and compassionate action. God didn't have to send a prophet to Nineveh. God didn't have to spare Jonah when Jonah disobeyed. But God chose to be merciful. He worked out the whole situation so that he might pour kindness on the undeserving. Why? Because this pleases God. This is his heart. And who's more undeserving than the Ninevites? Wicked pagans, brutal conquerors, enjoying the pleasures obtained from others' suffering. They're a wicked city, and as Duane mentioned, they're not Jews. They're outside of God's special covenant. They're Gentiles. But God sends them a prophet. And this generation of Ninevites and their king repent. It doesn't stay this way. The Ninevites and the people of Assyria, they apparently go back to their old ways. Uh, A later generation does not follow after the Lord. We see other prophecies against Nineveh and Assyria in other Old Testament books after Jonah. 
But this generation, in God's sovereignty, experienced unmerited kindness from God. This generation of Gentiles, outside of Israel, far away from Israel, we don't have the map anymore, but it's not even close by to Israel. God chose in his kindness to spare them from temporal judgment and also to, I think for many of them, give them eternal salvation. We're going to see the Ninevites from Jonah's preaching in heaven. But there's one more aspect of this account that has to do with God showing mercy to the Gentiles. And that is what it says about Israel. This book is a rebuke to the hard hearts of the Israelites. Because think about it. Not only through Jonah do we see Israel have a lack of compassion for others, for their neighbors, for Gentiles, they also persist in their idolatry. And God is showing Israel through this account, I send you prophet after prophet. You're my special people. You have my feast, you have my temple, you have my special blessings, yet you will not repent. You keep on going after other gods. You keep on holding to your sin and your worldly ways. I send one prophet, one reluctant, prejudiced prophet to the greatest and most godless city in Assyria, and they all, from the least to the greatest, instantly repent. Don't you see the contrast, Israel? Are you not utterly ungrateful and wicked? You have multiple prophets. You're my people. You won't repent. They have one prophet who doesn't even like them, and they all repent. Jesus makes the same point during his ministry in the New Testament. Matthew 12, 38 to 42. It says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, that's Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Validate yourself. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, someone, behold something greater than Jonah is here. And then there's another mention. And the queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. What's Jesus' point? Namely this. Wicked Gentiles instantly responded to the half-hearted preaching of Jonah, but when the Messiah, God's son, comes to Israel with the message of salvation, they will not believe and they constantly ask for more signs. Furthermore, a Gentile queen was willing to travel across the world just to hear Solomon's wisdom. And yet, Jesus says to his audience, why are you so unwilling to listen to my wisdom, the wisdom of the Messiah, the wisdom of God himself? Is your heart not utterly dark? So, this book is not only an intimate look at the sovereignty of God and his kindness, his incredible kindness, it's also a look at the hard-heartedness of Israel and of mankind, those who claim to follow after God and yet persist in wicked ways. By the way, Jesus' words are significant in another way. Some claim that this book and what happened to Jonah are not to be taken literally. This is all a point in allegory, or it's a myth. You can't actually believe that someone survived inside a fish for three days. Well, Jesus treats Jonah and the events of this book as actual happenings. And Jesus is God and cannot lie. Cannot say that Jesus was merely accommodating the false understanding of the people of his own day. Jesus states plainly that Jonah was in the fish three days and three nights, and that the people of Nineveh repented at Jonah's preaching. If that's not true, Jesus is lying. And if Jesus is lying, he's not God. Moreover, Jesus uses these historical happenings as the basis of his own statements. If Jonah didn't actually spend three days and three nights in the fish, then will the Son of Man actually spend three days and three nights in the earth? If one didn't happen, how do we know the other is going to happen? It only works if one really did happen. Or, if Jonah never preached and if Nineveh never repented, how can Jesus rebuke the Jews for not believing his greater word? There would be no basis for his rebuke, for his comparison. No, this is history. Jonah is history. It's miraculous, God-involved history, but it was written down as history to benefit Israel, to benefit us. 
So how can we apply the book of Jonah? We see God's heart. We see God's sovereignty. We see the hard-heartedness of Israel. How can we apply it today? A number of ways, but let me just pose to you a series of questions to get us thinking about application. God's word in the real world. Ask yourself these things as you consider the book of Jonah. First, do you love God for who he is? Do you love God for his heart? We see his great patience and his compassion in this account. Do you love God for this heart that he has? That he's actually also shown towards you? You're like Nineveh. You're like Jonah. You're disobedient. And yet God had mercy on you. He gave you his word. He sent you his revelation. He saved you if you've come to know him. Have you Or do you love the Lord for his kindness, for his heart? Have you encountered God's heart? Do you love God? Another question. Are you indeed more like Nineveh or are you like Israel? Even though you're here in church, is your heart far away from God? Are those that come out of obviously sinful backgrounds putting you to shame? Because you have not yet set aside your hypocrisy. Another question. Do you have compassion on people? Even those that seem unworthy of it or are insignificant? Or are there certain people because of what they've done to you, how they spoke to you, because of what culture they come from or what ethnic background they have, because of their past sinful behavior or life, These people you want nothing to do with. You don't want to show them compassion. They don't deserve it. You don't even want to see it happen to them. You may even secretly desire that evil fall upon them. You want to see things, you want to see um, hurt come to them. Is that true? Do you have compassion for other people? Or do you feel like some are not worthy of it? And then on a related note, are you apathetic to the plight of your fellow men before God? Are you more sympathetic to mistreated plants and animals than humans who need God's rescue? Are you unwilling to be God's messenger to the world? Are you on your own ship to Tarshish away from man's great need? Away from your mission that's God-given? Are you trying to flee from God's presence? Please consider these questions. We are to be like Nineveh, not Israel. We are to repent. Let us learn the lesson of Jonah. Let us behold, love, and imitate the compassionate heart of God. Let us repent of the wrong attitudes that we've had and live differently. Quick questions or comments before we close? Got maybe two minutes. All right. Well, that's it for Jonah. Next week, we turn to another prophet, Elijah. We'll look at how God uses Elijah. Let's close in prayer. Father, this is a very poignant book. And it is a, it is a serious rebuke to be considered. God, because we can be very much like Jonah, we can... Think about our relationship with you, consider ourselves one of your people, and yet walk so hypocritically and unlovingly towards our fellow man. We cannot care about them. We can refuse to share the gospel with them. We can be so apathetic. We can get so caught up in our own pursuits. Lord, I pray that you would do the soul surgery that is necessary. Lord, we want to repent of these things. We don't want to live this way anymore. We want to follow after you as you have meant us to be. Because if we're not obedient to you, God, we don't belong to you, despite what we say, despite whatever Christian heritage we might have. We show whether we belong to you when we repent of our sin. So God, I pray that you would work repentance where it's necessary, that you would encourage your people where they are already doing right, and that we would, uh, we would learn the lesson of Jonah. In Jesus' name, amen.